This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 53 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Louisa Serene Snyder, the founder and CEO of Rowan. Founded in 2019, Rowan believes that ear piercing is a milestone that deserves to be celebrated. Performed by licensed nurses and using hypoallergenic earrings made from premium materials, Rowan offers top-quality ear piercing services both at your home and in retail stores such as Target. In this episode, Louisa shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up in North Carolina to starting her own yoga clothing brand, to working in investment banking, to being inspired by the bankruptcy of Claire's, which sparked the idea for Rowan. She talks with us about how she came up with the name Rowan, her tips for hiring a great team, and how she raised over $12 million. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Louisa. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your amazing story and building Rowan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. Super excited to be here. Awesome. So tell us about, you know, where you're from, you know, what was childhood like? What was it like growing up? So childhood for me was rural North Carolina. So I grew up in a really small town in the South and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time walking to school, um, neighborhood friends. We had a, a town clock that would that would ding at five o'clock, which meant get home. And it was in many ways very idyllic. Um, in other ways, I always dreamed about going to New York City or where you are today, Los Angeles. Yeah. And being being more involved in the world. Sometimes I felt like the world was passing us by there and that mm. we were kind of watching. And, but, but I, you know, I was surrounded by family and both of my parents are doctors and my mom is one of five and all of her siblings are either doctors or nurses as were my grandparents. Wow. Was there a I, lot of pressure for you to be a doctor? 
I think you know after one after one um, semester of organic chemistry and 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 a few other science courses cobbled together and you know barely surviving, my my family decided that if I wanted to do something business related, that would be fine <laughs> for everyone's benefit. They're like, we so, have enough doctors. You're off the hook. <laughs> yeah, I you know I my father's a surgeon and he had all of us come in and and watch him do some sort of significant procedure. Mine was a knee replacement. Wow. And I'm one of three and I was the only one that didn't faint. So they thought, oh, well, she'll definitely be a surgeon. But <laughs> lo and behold, I, I am an entrepreneur instead. See, I hate needles. So I knew from a very <laughs> long time that this was never going to work for me. Right. Um, right. <laughs> it's way clear of that field. Exactly. No, I, I think that for me, I grew up um, over over the dinner table hearing about different stories that my parents had, um, always related in some ways to the hospital or to their medical practices. And aunts and uncles, the same, mm-hmm. very close family, so very close with our extended family. And that was something that, in a way, I took for granted. And 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 now I appreciate how incredibly wonderful it is to have family nearby. Yeah. And family that are doctors. I mean, you probably save a lot of money going to the office. (laughs) It's true. You, you realize the benefit of it. And I, I think that I always had a doctor or a nurse to call on if Mm -hmm. I had an issue. And I think it's no surprise that with, you know, 3 million registered nurses in the U S plus or minus, um, these are the most trusted and respected of employees in many ways and professionals. And they, they take on a tremendous amount of responsibility in hospitals and in other settings and they take care of us. And I had that growing up. And so I think it was only natural that I kind of looked at them when we thought about how to build a better service for ear piercing as a logical provider of that service, because I knew that they had been doing it. Um, so interesting. I'm really curious real quick when you, so when you were growing up, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Cause here you're saying you wanted to be in New York. I mean, I felt the same way. I grew up in Delaware and I was like, I don't really think I belong here. You know, right. like right. I had this sense that no, I don't fit in here somehow. Yes. Get out. Um, <laughs> but even just thinking about the first, you know, like, why did I obsess over New York? When did that happen? I think it was a field trip or something in school, but I don't know. Where did yours come from? What made you want to go to New York? I think for me, I was always interested in other cultures and in seeing things. And I was a a big tennis player growing up and traveled to a lot of tournaments. And my best friend was a year older uh, than I am. And he's now running infectious disease at Duke. He's a doctor, surprise, Mm -hmm. surprise. (laughs) Um, And he, he kind of led this foray into let's go to camp outside of North Carolina. Let's go to tennis tournaments outside of North Carolina let's go to high school outside of North Carolina. And I, in many ways, followed in his footsteps there. And then I did go to boarding school. I remember meeting um, a friend who's now my best friend, and she's from El Salvador and spoke obviously Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. She was the first person I'd ever met that was bilingual. Mm -hmm. So for me, a lot of it was eye-opening and just seeing that I wanted more of it. I wanted I wanted to learn another language. I wanted to travel to Europe. I wanted to 
experience the world and New York is that it brings yeah. together every culture. So many of my friends similarly were from my husband's from a small town in Indiana and he also wanted to to grow and be part of the world economy and and meet people from different backgrounds and different cultures who had different thoughts and beliefs. And so I think New York is just such a wonderful place for all those reasons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was always a dream. And my parents said, okay, you can live wherever you want, but you're going to have to support yourself. And so that is one reason that I, that I worked in finance for a lot of my early career. Interesting. And so when you were younger, did, was there any signs of you being very entrepreneurial? Like, did you have the lemonade stand or what signs were there early on? Yes. I think it's interesting that you asked that because I have always thought about how can we do something better? Mm -hmm. I remember one of my early birthday parties, there was a vendor that came to do this sort of go fish party favor behind a, a closet and 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 it was really cool and and I approached the guy afterwards and said you know I think we could make a business out of this together because I have a lot of friends that want to have birthday parties and they all thought this was really cool but maybe I could I could work on it with you and that continued I I did um, when I went to business school at Columbia I was in the greenhouse program there which is for entrepreneurship Mm-hmm. I graduated in 2006, so this was before Lululemon was in New York, um, mm-hmm. before yoga clothing was really something that was across every platform of clothing. Yeah, and I started a yoga clothing company. My maiden name is Serene, and it was Serene Wear. Um, but when I graduated from business school, I had a lot of debt, so I ended up going back to finance and not pursuing that. Uh, I've always looked at at businesses, at ideas. Through the lens of the consumer, retail is fascinating to me, and it's an area that has always interested me. So you worked in finance. So tell us about you know your first couple jobs there, and what are some of the things that you were able to take away that kind of helped you as an entrepreneur? So my my first experience was investment banking. So my first job out of college was in the generalist mergers and acquisitions pool at Morgan Stanley. And the first deal that I was put on was the sale of Brooks Brothers. Mm-hmm. And it was ultimately purchased by Claudio Del Vecchio, who runs Luxottica. It's his company. And I got to travel with him and show him the tie factories and go down to North Carolina and look at where they make shirts for Brooks Brothers. And spending time with him quite sure he does not remember it, but I remember it in detail. Yeah. Thinking about how this business could change and evolve, um, how how it was an iconic brand, but perhaps had not been managed in the way that it could be optimally managed. Thinking about the manufacturing piece, but also the heritage part of it, seeing the flagship store in New York. I was really moved by all of that and continued to work on consumer retail related businesses was then at JP Morgan and worked on the credit side and was part of the group that did a lot of funding and helped um, 
with the firm's retained exposure to large credit facilities. And one of the companies that we worked on in, in the early days was Amazon. And that was really fascinating, you know, certainly a certainly a pre-revenue or pre pre-profit company at that time. Mm-hmm. But looking at Amazon, but then also Sears and other big retailers that that I'd known from childhood and and sort of starting to watch in the early days as as this mass evolution towards online started to take place and how that how that played out from a capital standpoint, from a financing standpoint, um, from a from a consumer standpoint. Mm-hmm. Lots of different hypotheses about what was going to work, and then what we now know has in fact worked. So I think I I, I love being a student and and reading and and thinking about what will happen next. What what is going to be easier and better for the consumer? Very cool. And so, were you kind of inspired at that time already, or what? What kind of happened next after working in finance and seeing all of this consumer retail stuff and seeing the future go online? Yeah, I, I was. I would I would go downstairs when I was at J.P. Morgan and meet with a friend who then went on to to start another very well known business, and she and I talked about doing um, a next generation pharmacy together. We wrote a business plan. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of ideas about just what could be done differently. And I think, you know, then going to business school and then ultimately working at a hedge fund that was actively shorting brick and mortar and, and, and shorting malls and then studying all those inline retailers that were paying rent to the big REITs. Mm-hmm. For me, um, I was looking for an opportunity to disintermediate something that had not already happened. And when the idea for ear piercing and, and, and looking at Claire's, the impending bankruptcy in 2018, which, which is really not in any way to, you know, it, certainly not a chapter 11. This was the company restructuring way too much debt after an LBO from 2007. I was just amazed that the company hadn't had any innovation in the process, mm-hmm. in the service, in the store format and the branding and it was interesting claire's mm -hmm. i remember claire's i got my pierced i don't even think i don't think i got them pierced there but i got them pierced across you know how in the malls they used to have those like in the middle of the walkway there'd be like jewelry things and they'd pierce your ears in front of everybody walking by (laughs) i was that 12 year old getting my ears pierced and like crying but had short hair my mom was like you need to get your ears pierced your hair's too short you dress like a boy because it was the 90s grunge era right so she's like you need to get your ears pierced they think you look like a little boy like I don't care mom (laughs) so I went to my ears pierced it was not a great experience (laughs) right right oh my gosh but Claire's was right there and you're right it had it hadn't changed for years it never changed no it was a mess in there it was like yeah yeah there's a lot of stuff yeah, I think one thing one thing that I certainly took away from from my time working at different banks and in, in the hedge fund world is that men are still by and large the the allocators of capital, and I've had that experience also with with the VC community. Although I will say I've had tremendous uh, good fortune of having great relationships with with leading females in mm-hmm. in venture capital and, and very proud that some of them are our biggest investors, but I, I couldn't help but, but feel very confident that the reason the opportunity exists 
and existed to to come into this space and invest in it and reimagine it is because men just if they don't live it and experience it they're not going to see the opportunity they're not going to put money behind it mm-hmm. and also maybe it was good enough as it was and so but we saw it, it wasn't good enough so yeah so you saw kind of the bankruptcy of Claire's as an opportunity um, to do something innovative in the space. Is that kind of what sparked the idea? Yes, it, it was. It brought my attention to it. Mm-hmm. So they they were a three point two billion dollar LBO in two thousand seven. So a lot of debt trading, a lot of bets being placed still Mm -hmm. really owned by two large hedge funds. And so it was, it was a name that was being talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. So in many ways that initially kind of drew me in to say, what's going on here. Right. And are we actually improving the operations of this business or the experience, or are we just recapitalizing something? And then I, I just, it just hit me like, wow, this is a seminal moment. This is a really important moment. And even if it's not, even if for some people they say, oh, well, I just went to the mall and got it done and it wasn't a big deal. You know what? It was an opportunity to have a moment Yeah, definitely. with a friend or a parent or even with yourself. And, you know, don't we want to have great moments and remember them if we mm-hmm. can, because ultimately in life, like that's what we look back on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my grandma took me to get my ears pierced. My mom was obviously pushing the whole thing. But like when we got there, I think she she was expecting to have a moment together, right? And I'm just watching all these people walk by and it's just like very distracting and it just was transactional and boom, there you go. Oh, congrats. Okay, great. I'm in pain now. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's such a, I think that was kind of it for me is that, wow, you know, this is, uh, this is an opportunity to have a wonderful moment. And we've seen that again and again with our experience. You know, we are in a lot of target locations now, but we're able to create still a sense of privacy and celebration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just two or three weeks ago, we had an amazing piercing that I I was told about where a girl was from a blended family. So her parents had remarried and they don't often all get together and everyone came, Mm -hmm. both parents, uh, both step parents, uh, siblings, half siblings, and they they came together for this moment for her, and they were able to do it safely in Target. And she was just over the moon. And our nurse also happened to be from a blended family, so it was very very impactful for her. And I think that is for us what one of the really exciting things about building this business is that we're creating this moment, and then we want to be a brand that that remains true to that customer for the rest of her or his life. Yeah. That's awesome. So how did you end up getting started? What was like the first step or the aha moment where you're like, all right, I need to start acting on this. This is really interesting. I had been taking notes and starting to do research on my own. And I, a friend actually invited me to her son's bris um, and I read the invite over email and, um, I was on the train and I was also reading about Claire's, uh, impending bankruptcy. And I just thought, wow, like we're, she's having a party and, you know, for the bris and it's this really big deal. And we're still sending girls to the mall. And this is just not good enough. Like, I am not happy with this. 
And I, I started talking to my husband about it and, and he said, you know, it's time. Like you need to go and do this. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine um, had, had graduated from Stanford business school and had moved to New York with her husband who was relocating. And she sat down with me and we just modeled out the business and we looked at the total addressable market and we, and, and at this time, now there have been others that have stepped into this ear piercing space because it's a big space and it merits many great players. But at the time it was just Claire's and piercing pagoda and, you know, a plethora of tattoo parlors and, you know, a pediatrician's office here and there. Um, and so I came to this thinking, this is just a white space. And so, and she and I had coffee and we both at the time had very young kids. So this was over a mommy play date. (laughs) And then she, she called me the next week and said, come on over. And she had built like a 30 page model. And she was like, you must do this business because the opportunity is massive. And we went through it in every direction and we bootstrapped and I ended up getting an MVP together and, and worked on it for about a year and, and, and started, you know, I think I wanted to look at the holistic picture. So not just the ear piercing experience itself, but I, I talked to a ton of people. I did a lot of research and I, I discovered that many, many people end up getting infections because they put in a bad earring when their ear is still healing or even after it's healed mm-hmm. and it, it irritates their ear. They develop um, a reaction to nickel or some other yeah. highly allergic metal Mm-hmm. Um, allergy inducing metal. And then, then they have a bad outcome. And so right. for me, if we had the opportunity to make our own jewelry, that was what I also wanted to include that as part of Rowan to have this full Rowan experience. And so we led with that. We led with a subscription product for girls that was ideal for newly pierced ears. And um, after so about you a started, year, yeah, so you started with the actual, the earrings and kind of solving that problem first before creating an experience we okay. started with both, but we started with a mobile experience. So I had several friends who were nurses and they agreed to work with me as contractors to go to homes and do ear piercing. Mm. And so the goal was let's, let's create this experience. Let's do ear piercing at home. And, and I had done research again. I knew there were, I know there's a nurse in New York city that charges hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to do at-home appointments. And she's very popular. She's booked. And so I, I, I reached re, and, and there, there are nurses doing that in every city mm-hmm. in San Francisco. There's an ophthalmologist who does ear piercing and, but these are individuals and their schedules are really packed and they're charging something that is prohibitive for the vast majority of people. Right. Um, and, and from my experience, I, I really wanted being from North Carolina, et cetera, I wanted to bring something that was accessible, mm-hmm. but that was better and that was safer. Mm-hmm. And I also really liked the idea of creating a new work opportunity for nurses. And so I wanted to see if nurses would be interested. So we ended up, you know, I was able to get a few friends who are nurses who were actually looking for some part-time work outside of the hospital, but they didn't really want to do kind of end of life care or something like that. They wanted something positive. Mm-hmm. And we were able to actually get pretty busy in the Westchester area, which is where I live and started getting a lot of, a lot of moms 
And dads, you know, when the time is right for an ear piercing, they ask friends or family, where did you go? Mm-hmm. And so the word of mouth virality of it was just organically happened and started getting a lot of requests. Can you do my daughter's ear piercing? Her birthday's coming up, you know, two months from now, grandma's going to be here. Mm-hmm. You'd like to book your nurse. And that's when we knew we had something. And so it was both the experience and the product at the same time. That's really interesting. So really, um, was there any metrics or kind of numbers you were thinking ahead of time or like if we hit this number of requests or if we hit this number of revenue or whatever it is um, that we were onto something? Like, did you set any kind of goal early on? Uh, I think we we definitely wanted to understand the... It was it was less about getting a certain number of subscribers to our subscription box or bookings, but it was more about what is the feedback. So if it's a five star rating, are we getting five stars? Mm-hmm. Is our NPS close to a hundred? Mm-hmm. Are we getting referrals? Yeah, and we were. And then for the subscription box, it was okay. Well, there are naysayers that say, you know what, earrings that's not a consumable. It's not like the birth control pill that you really need every day. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a feeling people are going to turn out after two months. Okay, well, let's test that. Turns out the hypothesis that we had, which was these things are small mm-hmm. and we lose them and we want to change them and we want variety. That and also our subscription box is, is really a girl's introduction or a boy's introduction to mindfulness. So we have mindfulness content in our boxes and activities. These have become gifts that, that girls are receiving into the 12, 16 months and continuing to want to receive on a monthly basis. So the retention has been much, much stronger than we ever anticipated. We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nasto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. 
And so the name Rowan, um, I know Rowan is a tree. I guess it's also known as yeah. the Traveler's Tree. Um, how did you come up with the name? What was the moment like when you're like, that's what we we're calling it. That's, <laughs> that's it, Rowan. So my mom and all of her sisters are from Rowan County, North Carolina. And there it is definitely Rowan. Rowan, okay. But Rowan is how we pronounce Rowan. And what I love about the name is that it does have this meaning that you talked about. So, you know, traveler's tree, protection, and sort of rowan trees in Europe, I guess, throughout history were planted at the beginning of a property to signify the end of a journey, um, or they were, they were there to kind of show you the way. And for us, we, we kind of wanted that because this is a milestone moment and we want to show you the healthy, safer, better way and kind of hold your hand through it as the parent or as the, the person getting the piercing. We're, we're piercing 95-year-olds, so it's every age. Yeah. But um, I think what I, I love the fact that the name is not a girl's name or a boy's name. Mm -hmm. So we're piercing a lot of men, a lot of boys. And it's it's it personifies Rowan. Mm -hmm. So if we are a nurse, if we are a person, I, I like that for a brand, for a company that's providing such an intimate service. Yeah. And nurses are not limited to ear piercing. And we're building a network of hundreds of, if not soon to be thousands of nurses that are actually employees of Rowan. And they are mm -hmm. loving the experience. We're building a really strong, positive culture mm -hmm. where we value them and there is no limit to what we can do there. Yeah. So when did you go from side hustle or kind of, you know, working on this on the side to, all right, I've got to dive in full time now? That happened as we succeeded, more opportunity came. And with each accomplishment, there was maybe a quick moment to catch your breath and say, gosh, that was incredible. But then the next opportunity was there in front of us. And as we built out our team, the team, you know, became stronger and better and bigger. And it's, it's something that I, I think is probably the biggest gift is that I just absolutely love what I'm doing. And so yeah. for me, it's like, I just can't wait to wake up and start working in the morning, which mm -hmm. I know sounds crazy. Um, but it's, no, true. I mean, I would hope that's how it feels. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. And I, and I think we, you know, there, there are certainly, you know, we, we have wins and then we have challenges. Mm -hmm. That's how we start our morning meetings. We do a morning zoom every morning with, with every member of the team at nine 15. And uh, we, we, we talk about a win. We talk about a challenge too, if we want, but it's, it's so exciting to see the wins. And so I think what, mm -hmm. what happened is as we got investors to come on real investors that um, had expectations around their capital, not, you know, friends and family who said, okay, you know, call me in 10 years, but, but yeah. folks that, that wanted a, a monthly report and, and, mm -hmm. and had it and had investor rights and, and information rights. And there was an expectation around that. Yeah. It became, it became much more serious then. Yeah. As it should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I definitely want to talk about fundraising in a minute, but in terms of hiring a team, what are the biggest lessons you've learned through hiring your team and what do you look for most? It's a really, really good question. 
I think as a CEO, my most important job is to make sure that we are taken care of. So what does that mean? That I'm building, first of all, that we, that we have access to to growth capital and 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 great, you know, great support from an ideas standpoint, et cetera, but that I'm building a really good team. Mm-hmm. And so what we're looking for is one of our one of our core tenants is ownership and ownership of your work, ownership of your ideas, ownership of your behavior, of how you of how of how you interact with your teammates. And so we're looking for that. We're looking for people that have demonstrated ownership and in prior roles and with referrals. We have a pretty clear process of, of how we go through the interview um, cycle and who folks talk to and in what order uh, and what kinds of questions we ask. But we're definitely looking for for that that entrepreneurial drive and then also ownership mm-hmm. and that has been really, really great for us in terms of yielding phenomenal candidates. We're not looking for years of experience. We've seen people who have had more junior roles be ready very quickly to step into quite senior roles, mm-hmm. and they're eager for it. And rather than needing to build a team under them to do the work, they want to do it themselves, but they also have the ability to manage and build a team. And that is incredibly valuable. Yeah. I think when you have employees and 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 partners and, and teammates that feel ownership over what they're doing, there's a sense of joy and pride when things work, mm-hmm. but a sense of accountability when they don't. And that's fine because we're all going to go down the wrong path on this journey. Yeah. So are there any red flags that you've kind of noticed along the way that you're like, oh, that does not signal a very good thing that you can share for people that are hiring out there? It, it, it is oftentimes not one thing, but I, I think generally it's important to listen to your gut. I mean, so much of what you're building as a CEO, if you are imprinting yourself in the hiring process and working really closely with your team, and that is certainly my style, is going to trickle down from the top. And so you're you're trying to if something doesn't feel right, if I, I write it down during the mm-hmm. interview, and and I think it's important to listen, to understand, and not to respond in interviews. So I really do try to ask a lot of questions, and then I really do try to listen. And if if something doesn't feel right, I think it's very important to revisit it. And it's important to, in that next interview, make sure that any questions that you had coming out of it get asked by the next interviewer. Because mm-hmm. I think what what is inefficient is after the multiple interviews done by different folks on the team to still have outstanding questions. Mm-hmm. It, it should be that you circle back and say, I had an hour with this person, but here are the three things that I was left wondering about. Please mm-hmm. make sure to ask them. Yeah. That's that's uh, some good advice to kind of have some teamwork on the hiring process. So you have a bunch of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And to listen to your intuition. Um, I can definitely say from experience, you know, that there could be someone who looks on paper perfect and you really, really want to work with them because you just know they'll deliver. And then you have that initial conversation. You're like, something about this personality is not really a 
fit maybe, you know, I'm just right. feel like I'm going to rub the wrong way. I don't know why it just feels wrong. And I don't know right. if I can, if I'm already feeling challenged, like I can't deal. No, that's, that's a good point. One of, when I, I, I worked for Columbia business school and I ran the value investing program there for five years. And part of my role there was admissions for this program. And we had 40 spots and we would typically interview hundred one year, I think, I think we had close to 300 candidates and I did every single interview. So I've done a lot of interviewing mm -hmm. and there are a number of questions that I typically always ask. And I think they are very good indicators, certainly for an early screen. Can you share a few of them? So, one is, um, what are three adjectives that your closest friends would use to describe you and why? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't want to answer the question or they have a really hard time with it. Really? Or they're not sure what an adjective is. No, no. just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not no, hired, not hired. This is, this is, this is a, it's a great question because I think it, um, you know, it, it's just, it's a genuine one and, but it's also an interesting one. And, and, and lots of times people are really accurate and it's yeah. helpful to know, are they going to fit in with the, with the company culture, with the role, with the team? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I ask people what they like to do in their free time. And that is so great because I do care about who we're bringing on and who they are. And I want them to know that it's not just about their time at work that, but that we care about their interests. So if someone's and, like, I binge on Netflix, like every night and cool. <laughs> but then, but then I know like if I'm binging on Netflix, who to talk to and who okay. to ask for the next So it's show. not like a bad thing if you're doing no. something lazy. Cause I always feel like sometimes that question is like, how ambitious are you? What do you do in your free time? Are you right. doing like some right. crazy marathon shit that's going to impress me or not? And you're like, actually, <laughs> I just want to watch Netflix, you know? No, I almost <laughs> love the honesty of, I like to, you know, perfect my macaroni and cheese skills or, you know, whatever. Great. That's awesome. Um, I definitely like to ask people what their, what their long-term career goals are, because it's very interesting. Mm. You want, you want to know if you're bringing someone into your team, that that role is going to be on the path for them to what they're hoping to, to do later. Cause if, yeah. if we can help them achieve that, then it's going to be a good fit in many mm -hmm. ways. And Lots of other questions, but those are ones that I typically always ask. Nice. Well, thanks for sharing those. Um, and going to fundraising, I know you guys raised $12 million so far. Can you tell us about your experience in fundraising and one of your most challenging moments? We have had many challenging moments, just like every entrepreneur, I think. Yes. I have found the process to be, I, I liken it to planning a wedding. So I don't know if you're married, Lee. I am, but we didn't but, have a wedding. We just went straight well, to City Hall and called well, it a day. There you go. So that's <laughs> maybe that's why. Exactly. Yeah. But 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 I think what's so interesting about it is that you 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 have to do a tremendous amount of work and then um, and make some tough decisions about who's going to be invited and mm -hmm. you have to make decisions around a budget and. It, it's not just about the party. It becomes real at that point. And then it's, okay, can we really, can I really work with this person? Can I? Right. And so there's a reason for it. I think the fundraising experience requires you to get your house in order. And it is not possible to do it alone well. Mm -hmm. 
you need your team involved because they need to buy into the projections that you are building out and, and talking about. And it, it's a great way to get everyone around the table and to ask hard questions for KPI setting, for goal setting, for the team, to really understand who your customer is, what the market is, what you're trying to do. It really requires you to um, get clear and granular on all of that. Yes. And so I, even though there are aspects of it that are difficult, I think one of the biggest aspects of it that's difficult is that you are taken away from the operations of the business for a period of time. While the business needs to continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. And in the early days, you're making formative decisions about the operations of the business every day. And so if you're not there, oftentimes decisions are getting made without you or without as much oversight as you might like or input. Mm -hmm. And that's okay for a period of time, but over a long period of time, it's challenging. So you do kind of want to be efficient with a fundraising process for sure. Right. And so, you know, for me, those were the challenges is just, it, it, it meant a lot of very late nights and very early mornings because you've got your full-time job, which is building your business. And then you have another job, which is raising the money to grow the business. Right. Which is why it's so important to raise money for at least like an 18 month period so that you can get back to work and have a good year full of operating the business versus I think a lot of founders when they're first starting out, it's like, let me get some peanuts over here and some peanuts over there. And like, oh, should I need money again? How about this? You know, it's just like a scattered situation where fundraising really requires a a very serious strategy so that you can maintain the business properly. Absolutely. I think that's right. And and I, I genuinely, I, I like to admit when I had a strong opinion about something and then I've completely changed that view. Yeah. <laughs> and originally coming into this, I thought a dollar is a dollar. And if I know a very wealthy individual that can fund my entire business, I should just go with that strategy. I no longer believe that. <laughs> I well- see tremendous value in having different investors. And one of the biggest is hiring mm-hmm. and strategy. And that translates to every aspect of your business. And it's really, you know, you, you cannot do it alone. And, or you probably could, but it would just be so much more painful. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you're making decisions, when you need a vendor, you want to look at a 3PL, you want to understand a marketing strategy, you, you want to think about, AI, your network is infinitely larger if you have great investors who also have large networks who are very interested in your success, not only because they know you and like you, but because they've actually invested in your business. Right. And so during the fundraising process, I'm sure you were faced with a lot of no's as most founders are when they go out to raise. What didn't they want to believe about the business? What what weren't they getting? There, There are always different questions. Initially, And I I also think that themes are very important when you're fundraising. So if you happen to have a business that thematically is getting a lot of traction, there will be an inherent understanding of your business model. And so you can, you don't even have to really explain what you do. You're going to get on the phone with people and they already understand it and they're interested. I think for us, there had been a big push for subscriptions and subscription box businesses. And then 
that had kind of gone away. And so when we stepped out with that, there was immediate, oh, we, we don't want to do that. That We mm. don't do subscription boxes. It's not interesting right. to us. And just a, a full-on just dismissal of that entirely yeah. without, without looking right. and, and trying to understand, well, why might this be different? Mm-hmm. And there are folks that don't like service businesses. So right. that was sometimes a part of it. Generally, by the time we took a meeting, there was enough interest to at least have a really good and thoughtful conversation. Yeah. And typically, folks wanted to see us farther along. They wanted to see more traction. They mm-hmm. wanted to, I, I don't know, everyone had their own reason for, yeah. for either passing or, or not passing. I guess they, they also just say no so much that I think that it's just like this reflex. They're like, nope, like unless yeah. there's, unless it's so clear and obvious and, you know, in front of them right away or, or just communicated in a certain way that they're like, oh, wait, maybe this is different. I mean, very, very often the reason, and it's kind of like breaking up with someone is it's not you, it's me. Right. (laughs) So, but I think it is really helpful if you can get someone to give you really good feedback Mm -hmm. and to not let it, let it weigh you down, but Mm -hmm. to try to learn from it. Because like you said, they're seeing a lot of businesses and hopefully every entrepreneur believes wholeheartedly in what they're building. Yeah. You're not going to be too discouraged but it might help inform what you're doing. And maybe you'll change something for the better. Absolutely. Tell us about one of your most challenging moments in, in building the business so far. I mean, COVID must have been, you know, putting a wrench in things like it has with a lot of other businesses. Um, can you kind of talk about a few of the challenges that you've run into and how you've overcome them? COVID was definitely for us a challenge. And it was also an opportunity We took the opportunity to exit our New York City lease and to refocus on the relationship that we were building with Target. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for us, as a business that did not close, we were able to continue to work on that without the pressure of needing to hit the ball out of the park everywhere else. So we actually used it as an opportunity to kind of come in, strategize, slow certain aspects of the business down, really refocus, mm-hmm. reframe, and, and then get really aggressive. And so we actually opened our New York City studio in August. Still, I would say during the height of uncertainty, yeah, before a lot of people knew whether or not they were going to go back to school in any capacity, mm-hmm. before we knew what things really were going to look and feel like in a, in a COVID environment. But from my standpoint, I did the analysis and I I like to think about upside, downside and return on time. And I felt very confident that this was going to work and that the terms we were being extended were unusually good. And I loved the location and that's such a big part of it. Yeah. So it's been a huge success for us and it helped us build a lot of confidence during a really uncertain time to have one project that we Mm -hmm. could all kind of look and feel and see. Yeah. I mean, in the target expansion that you mentioned earlier is super impressive. So it sounds like you took, you know, it really was not just an opportunity. It was an enormous opportunity during COVID to build that relationship with target and to, you know, expand that. I mean, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said you're opening a hundred Rowan studios and target within the next month, which is actually going to be 400 by the end of the year. That's a lot of 
studios. That's one store a day. Um, so that's, that's some amazing, um, progress that comes out of kind of a dark time in COVID. Yes. Yes. I think we have found the fact that, and, and some of it is serendipity. We, we always prioritize safety first and mm -hmm. working with licensed medical professionals who understand sterility and how to wear protective equipment and how to interact with a patient or a piercing guest in our case with the, the best safety standards in place allowed us to be proactive and to be able to continue to have our doors open and continue to work during a really scary time. And what we found to be the case is that during COVID, parents were just absolutely desperate for some activity that they could do, but that they could feel safe about. We had so many of our customers say, they've had to put everything off, no sports, no school. This is her ninth birthday. And she was promised to get her ears pierced when she was six. She's been looking forward <laughs> to it every day. And we are so grateful that you're around so that we can do it because mm. we don't wanna have to put another thing off. Mm. So that felt really great. Um, and then in terms of our, of our nurses, of our amazing nurses, so many of them, and I, I, we have opened in Nebraska and Iowa and Detroit and all over the country and, and having, you know, the real pleasure of going to dinner with our nurses and talking to them and meeting them and, and interviewing them in person. So many of them have had a really, 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 really difficult time during COVID and they've seen the worst. Mm -hmm. They haven't always been treated very well. And unfortunately, you know, there's really not a more hierarchical place than a hospital. And they've been made to feel oftentimes like they're not on the top. You yeah. know, maybe the billboard says we love our nurses, but when it comes down to what they're being asked to do on a day-to-day -day -day basis or the shifts they're being given or how they're, what they typically do is being sunset completely and they're being asked to just be on a COVID ward or whatever it is, mm -hmm. they're really eager for positive work. And they're eager to be appreciated and for someone to say, I appreciate you and, and I'm going to show you it by paying you well and by giving you uh, a great job. Yeah. And that's helped us grow tremendously. And I think, you know, our nurses are, are the most um, impactful way that we hire because they refer their friends. Nice. That's great. And, um, you know, being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence. Um, is there a routine that you have or activity or thought process that helps keep you on track and positive each day? Yeah. So I, I have three kids and I think my biggest challenge is to try to be a good parent and to try to be a good CEO. Mm. And there's only so much of, of a, a person and it's 24 hours a day. And I often feel like I'm either doing one or the other better yeah. than, than, than the other and, and therefore not doing as well. <laughs> right. And so I do try to be present every morning uh, before our kids are, are starting their school day. And I also try to be present at dinner time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's that, that is hard. Lots of times there are things coming in or someone wants to talk and I have to try to force myself to get off my phone. Yeah. And it's really important. And, you know, I'm asking my kids to not be on their screens, but I am. So that's a struggle for me. Yeah. Um, in terms of what I love to do, I love yoga. It's my absolute favorite activity. And it is a physical and mental um, practice for me where I can really 
meditate because I'm not thinking about anything else. Mm -hmm. And it allows me to reset. I was listening to a podcast recently and someone said, when someone calls me with an issue, I say to them, I want to hear everything you have to say, but do me a favor, go take a walk or go to a yoga class and then call me back after, and then we'll talk Mm -hmm. about it. And nine times out of 10, the person calls and says, you know what? I'm actually good. I figured it out. (laughs) I feel that way personally. If I, if I am able to practice three or four times a week, my ability to be patient and have a much better response is Mm -hmm. just a lot more than if I haven't. It's an interesting kind of trend I see when I talk to founders is they all kind of have something, I think. They have, you know, they're running in the morning or they're doing yoga or they just have something for themselves to help just clear their thoughts. Yes. Um, it's definitely, I think, really important when you have so much going on. You have to keep a piece of you because you're constantly giving so much of yourself and you, mm-hmm. you're you selling your business, you're interacting with your investors, you're interacting with your amazing team you're interacting with your customers and you you have to keep a piece of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and that is important. Right. It's pretty hard to lead and be good at your job or be good at anything if you're not taking care of yourself. That's right. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? I think a lot of it has to do with, with management style. I hope I'm getting better every day. I am very type A. I am really tough on myself. I have incredibly high expectations for myself. And that is something that I think as an entrepreneur, if you really want to build a business, you cannot take that into every interaction. And I've become so much better at it, but I, I still see, you know, tremendous room to grow there. And I think, you know, this notion of listening to understand versus listening to respond Mm. is really valuable. So because everyone who's working on my team has something that they're seeing that I am not, and there's no way that I know the answer to everything. And I'm going to be wrong. A lot of times they're going to be right, even if I think I'm right. So I've got to listen and I've got to incorporate change and, and their ideas. And I think as I do more of that, I see a lot more success and just a lot more intrinsic motivation to succeed. And that's how we're going to build something really big. Yeah. That's interesting. So how would you, I guess, describe the management um, style that you had before versus the one that you've grown into now? What are the kind of the key differences? Because I guess, you know, when I'm thinking of type A, I'm thinking you have high expectations to yourself. So does that mean you have those same expectations on the team? And that's what you have? Yeah, I think I think part of it is more just I expect things to happen quickly or be resolved quickly. And, and then I think what I've learned is that there are really great processes. Another thing that I heard recently was whatever system you have in place is absolutely perfect to yield the outcome that it's yielding. So if you're not getting the right answer, then something about the process that you have in place needs to change. Hmm. And when our, COO joined Rowan. She was actually expecting and she found us and she's absolutely incredible. And she is just a natural leader of people and, and, and a natural, she's very, very good at a process. And so she has taught me a lot about how do we meet on an issue and hear all sides of it in a productive way 
where we're moving forward. And so implementing those systems and those processes has been really helpful for someone who, you know, personally, I, I would just sort of drive through things oftentimes yeah. versus creating a process to improve and that's iterative. Um, and that has been really valuable. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's one thing to have a great idea and to have the funding to go and execute that idea, but it's entirely different to try to to build a team and to build the processes to actually execute and get there. Absolutely. I think impatience is like a very important skill to have as an entrepreneur. Yes, Otherwise, is. nothing gets done and you you have to have that eagerness, that drive and that hunger. But yes. then right, when it comes to managing people, it's a little different, you know, you need to Yeah, I think finding someone that, that has a different approach than you do and partnering mm-hmm. with them is really valuable. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, if I'd known that initially, I might have sought that out sooner. Hmm. But you know, if, if it's, if it's all the same at the top, then you're not going to have a different vantage point. So I think that some ways it can feel challenging because you're not, you're oftentimes taking two steps back to take 10 steps forward. Yeah. But that's probably the right way to do it. <laughs> right. What are some um, other qualities you think uh, or characteristics make up a strong entrepreneur? So I've seen people that are so different be successful. Mm-hmm. I think optimism is probably the most important thing, being optimistic. And that is just infectious. And if you are optimistic, you know, in the height of COVID or even if something bad happens, just being able to say, we're so lucky to have this opportunity. We have a really incredible, unique idea and we're going to get there. And just continuing to be optimistic. I think that you can be, you can have lots of different characteristics or a lot, be a very, very different and still be really successful. But I think it's hard to be successful if you're not optimistic. Right. Yes. You have to be uh, optimistic. Absolutely. Otherwise, what are you working for all day? Right. <laughs> if you don't exactly. think it's going to go anywhere. It's not very motivating. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's the the grand vision for Rowan? What's next? You know, I know the, the Target store launches. That's a huge uh, undertaking and exciting opportunity. What else, is, what else can we expect to see from Rowan this year? We are really excited about our products. We are going to be doing some really exciting things there. So TBD, watch us on that over the next six months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, just, I think building out our e-commerce business is a focus and thinking about different ways of interacting with our customer online that can be more personalized. Mm-hmm. You know, every ear is different. Even both ears on your own head are different. And how do we customize an ear piercing experience for you and then and then bring it to life in person? Mm-hmm. Lots of cool things to be done. And I hope that we are going to be with realistic proximity to most folks mm-hmm. by the end of the year. And so we hope you'll come visit us and see us in person in Target or in our own studios. Awesome. And um, before we wrap up, uh, what other advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or others listening to the show, thinking about yeah. maybe starting a business? I, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. And, and she, you know, she says, what are you going to do with this one precious life? And you know, you're looking in the mirror every day. If you have an idea and you really believe in it, then you just have to go do it. And no matter what, you will be grateful that you tried. So I think it, it will lead to something else if it doesn't if it doesn't succeed in 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 that idea. So right. 
worst case yeah. scenario, you learn something along the way. Exactly. <laughs> There's exactly. really no downside. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> learning. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.